Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM366 Basic Christian Doctrine Podcast. You might be excited to hear that this podcast is going to be a little bit shorter than the normal lecture, so that's good news for you. Uh, But you might be unhappy about the reason why it's a bit shorter. That reason is that you have your application paper due uh, coming up at the end of the week here. This is one of two classes where we typically spend time in class focusing on content for the application paper. Now, I've dedicated time in both the recent GroupMe chats and in the recent Zoom conferences to talk about this. Your worksheet for last week is designed to help you prepare for the application paper. And I provided a number of concrete examples about that paper uh, in recent lectures. So looking at figures like Florovsky and Ea Korea, uh, Chiara Lubitsch, Martin Luther. Today we'll add two more with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Desmond Tutu. However, before I briefly outline their thought, I want to give you a few basic tips about this upcoming paper. A few mistakes that people typically make on the paper. The first mistake is lacking specificity. So remember, the goal of the paper is to match a Christian doctrine with either your involvement in a church or your involvement in a future career. Now, these are uh, hypothetical matches. You don't necessarily need to believe the doctrine, though maybe you do. But the question is, if you believed this doctrine, how would it change the way that you think about or are involved in your job or in a church? Why lack of specificity is a problem is if you don't go into any details with a doctrine and you don't go into any details in terms of how it would apply to your job, which is the angle most students take, uh, then you wind up with a very generic paper that probably reads something like, um, Jesus was a good example, so I should be good in my career. That's true. But without any specific details there, that's actually something you could have written without ever spending any time in this class. Instead, the goal of this paper is to challenge you to think through class content and how it might actually matter for our everyday life in this world, in addition to its significance for eternal life. Uh, I have given plenty of examples in this, and you'll get a few more today. Um, But ideally... If you can break down the doctrine into some of its specific details and connect those to your career, you'll be better off. For example, when I introduced the doctrine of union, I went through nine different aspects of that doctrine. Aspects like location, identification, and participation, for example. So if you were writing a paper and trying to say that the doctrine of union helped you think about how to be a... Uh, veterinarian better, and you didn't get into any specifics, it probably would not be as clear of a paper as if you explained how participation and location cause you to think more clearly about being a vet. Now that's kind of a weird pairing. I'm not saying that's the paper you should write. If you want to be a vet, I'm just showing how specificity matters. Be specific. Give me details. So that's one mistake to avoid. Another mistake to avoid Um, is to spend way too much time talking about your decision process in choosing a career. I'm sure you've all had important stages of your life that have helped you choose your career, 
and that can be an important part of the paper. But sometimes students turn in a paper that is 80% a discussion about how God helped them see through different prayers and different life experiences that they needed to be a physical trainer or a lawyer uh, or a corrections officer. That's good. I'm glad you've been seeking God's guidance in this context, but the task of the assignment is to look at a doctrine and think about how you'll do your job. So make sure that's what the bulk of the assignment focuses on. Uh, two final tips. The first is that in the modules tab, you will see a sample uh, application paper that's uploaded. Uh, Stephen Jenkins, if any of you were around when he was still a student, uh, wrote a great one from the standpoint of human resources. So maybe take a look at that and see the sort of thing I'm looking for. And finally, you are welcome to use outside sources, but if you do, I ask that you cite them. And I generally discourage students doing a Google search for theology ideas, because more often than not, you're going to find a crazy blog or website that's using terms completely incorrectly. So it might cost you points just as much as it might help you. All right, so those are your tips. Two more examples of Christians who are applying doctrines to Christian life. The first one I want to talk about is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer uh, comes from this time of Christian history that we looked at a little bit earlier in the semester. We discussed how German Christians actually played a considerable role in the persecution of Jews during the Holocaust. And this is because German churches were willing to hand over baptismal records that allowed the church, excuse me, that allowed the state to identify whose ancestors had not been baptized and who were therefore probably not Christian. Uh, this was a huge problem. Bonhoeffer was a German Christian during this time period, but he was not a member of the Deutsch Christen, that group that endorsed the Nazis, and he did not practice Protestant liberalism with some of its ideologies that led to many liberals supporting the Nazi cause. So Costly Grace, the first chapter of his book called The Cost of Discipleship, is part of his theological response to the Nazi regime. You'll notice that he sets up a contrast between cheap grace and costly grace. Part of what he's doing here is theologically thinking through the doctrine of justification, where from his standpoint as a Protestant, we are justified by faith alone, but also thinking through the theology of the law. So remember the term of antinomianism, which we've talked about in the past. Antinomianism is the idea that once a Christian, you have no need for the law. This is often an excuse to continue a pattern of sin in your life. So there were some German Christians who might support evils like the Nazis because of Protestant liberal theology, but there were a number of others who might support Nazi ideology simply because they had left their faith on a superficial level. They believed they were justified due to faith, and therefore they didn't think very much about living a good life, especially when it was risky, as standing up to the Nazi government was. It could get you put in labor camps or executed. 
In this context, Bonhoeffer distinguishes between costly grace and cheap grace. So you'll notice on page 43, the first page of your reading, he defines uh, cheap grace as the deadly enemy of the church. In the second paragraph, he says cheap grace means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. It is intellectual assent to the idea uh, which is held to be self-sufficient to secure remissions of sins. What does he mean there? Cheap grace is basically a grace that causes us to mentally say, okay, I believe Jesus died for my sins. And once you say that mentally, you think that you are a Christian and you have done everything that you must do in order to be righteous with God. But Bonhoeffer goes on to say that cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. What does he mean there? Well, we can all justify our sins. We might be doing something evil and say, well, everybody else is doing it, or this really isn't that bad, or who's really ever going to find out about this sin anyway? And we use these justifications or excuses to keep doing evil. In this case, Bonhoeffer says that we might point to the fact that we mentally have said Jesus is our Savior, and because of that, feel free to go on in any number of sins. Well, Jesus has saved me, so he'll forgive me if I don't stand up against the Nazis. Jesus has saved me, so he'll forgive me if I'm thinking cruel things about Jewish people in my community, and so forth and so on. This is cheap grace. Bonhoeffer contrasts this with the idea of costly grace by appealing to a number of scripture passages and parables of Jesus. On page 45, he says, Costly grace is the treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has to buy it. That's reference to one of Jesus' parables. And he goes on to explain this term now in terms of theology. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it causes us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life. Costly grace says, I am not saved by what I do. I am not saved by earning it. But if I am saved, it costs me everything. In response, I leave my entire life of sin behind, or at least as much of it as I can. I give everything to Jesus and follow him as a disciple. This is a different interpretation of justification than many of Bonhoeffer's peers. And it's his application of a doctrine to his particular historical context. That's the sort of thing that good doctrine should do. It should connect to your life and your context. I want to give you one more. This is an example from Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa on PowerPoints 3.7. Desmond Tutu is basically the Martin Luther King Jr. of South Africa. 
where the South African system of apartheid was in many ways similar to Jim Crow laws and segregation in the United States. There was race-based inequality, oppression, and violence that took decades and centuries even to overcome in South Africa. Let's tell you a little side story here. Desmond Tutu was the graduation speaker of my wife at her college graduation. We were dating at the time. I had long wanted to see Desmond Tutu speak in person, but she decided she did not want to go to her large graduation, but only to her departmental graduation. The large graduation at Carolina had tens of thousands of people. She didn't feel that she needed to go. And I still hold that over her head every time I teach Tutu in class, because being the good boyfriend, I followed her to celebrate at a fancy meal with her family, rather than going to see Tutu at her graduation without her. So if you ever happen to see her, she's the campus counselor. I won't know about it, but you can give her a hard time for that decision. So what did Tutu do that was so significant? Part of what he did is resist the apartheid structure, but there's something he did after apartheid that I want to focus on a bit more. He develops what he calls Ubuntu theology. This is a theology of South Africa drawn by uh, various African tribal philosophies uh, in light of Christian doctrine and teaching in the Bible. There are four dimensions of what he calls Ubuntu that he draws on centrally in his application of doctrine. First, the doctrine of creation. People are made for fellowship with Christ. Second, the doctrine of the Trinity. What is a person? We talked about in the doctrine of the Trinity, the word person, referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is defined in terms of your relationship with the other. Tutu draws on this and says, well, personhood, even for humans, is also defined in relation to the other. So we need to have relationships with people who are other than us, who are different, who have cultural diversity. Third, Society should strive for interdependence on God and neighbor because we need these relations. And fourth, based on this, Tutu argued that apartheid must be overthrown because it prevented fellowship with one another and with Christ, an application of the Trinity and creation. And apartheid fell. And a new president, a black South African president, uh, Nelson Mandela, was elected. And people began to wonder what is going to happen here. And lots of circumstances after uh, systems of oppression and racism were defeated, after uh, colonial systems, uh, particularly in Africa, had fallen, there was a history of civil wars and of genocide. There were concerns about this in South Africa, but Tutu applied the same context, the, the same concepts. We are made for fellowship with one another. We should strive for interdependence with one another. And more than that, we need reconciliation. But Tutu contrasts a cheap reconciliation, like what Bonhoeffer talks about, that allows us to cover over sin. So you can say, oh, I forgive you, let's be reconciled, but not actually change your patterns. That's not true reconciliation, Tutu says. That doesn't help us be connected with one another. True reconciliation requires the truth. So he helped establish something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which he chaired. This was an opportunity for members of society from all levels 
uh, all leadership positions, all the way down to uh, the homeless, to come in and share what evils they had done or what evils had been done to them under the apartheid system in order to seek truth, that people might know what apartheid had actually been as a step toward overcoming the problems that remain following apartheid. Now, we don't want to smooth over problems too easily. There are still many justice issues that are ongoing in South Africa that must be addressed. But it is true that Tutu's approach prevented widespread violence across the country. There was no genocide in South Africa. And as a result of his work, not only did he earn a Nobel Prize, but he was invited to many other nations that were involved in racial conflicts. After the genocide in 1994 in Rwanda between the Hutu and Tutsis, he was invited to come in and to discuss how truth and reconciliation might apply in that context. When there was violence between the Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, Tutu was invited to come in and implement his method of truth and reconciliation to prevent conflict. After Bosnia and Herzegovina, in uh, the civil wars that happened there in conflict in Kosovo, Tutu was called in. This is the application of the doctrine of creation and the Trinity to a situation of conflict resolution. Now, there are a lot of details and specifics that I left out here, but it shows the significance that doctrine can have. I'm asking you to imagine that doctrine might be equally significant for how you do your job. Tutu knew the realities of apartheid in ways that I never will. You know the realities of your careers in ways that I cannot. I'm never going to work in them. So the task falls on you to figure out how all of these beliefs apply to your career context, especially and particularly if you're a Christian who believes that these doctrines are true. So that's the paper, and those are your final two examples to help you think through it. If I can help any more, please send me an email. Otherwise, until next time, be well.